You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health featuring Mark Lipsitch, professor of epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, March 23rd. Good morning, uh, everyone. Um, I don't have a whole lot to start with today. Uh, we've talked many times in the past. Uh, I'll point, point to the op-ed that I published this morning in the Washington Post um, suggesting how our testing strategy can best be adapted to the situation that we're in uh, in the United States, which is one of little testing capacity and lots of cases that we don't know about. Um, and uh, I wrote that in part because I've been asked by a lot of people, both professional public health people and reporters, about what should the testing strategy be. Um, and uh, the view that I wanted to clarify is that that's not a meaningful question until you specify two, really two things. One is what proportion of the cases do you know about, uh, which is low in the United States and uh, high in some places, some islands like Singapore and Iceland. And secondly, what uh, is your testing capacity, which is low in the United States and high in some of those other places. If you have high testing capacity and know about a high proportion of all cases, then it makes sense to make testing of all of all cases and um, case-based interventions like isolation and quarantine the centerpiece of your strategy. If, on the other hand, you're in our situation where you know about a small fraction of cases and have limited testing capacity, that can't work because you can't test everyone um, and you don't. Uh, and, and focusing very intense interventions on a small fraction of cases doesn't really constitute an effective control strategy. So that's why in our situation it, we want to get to the point where we can implement a Singapore or Iceland-like testing strategy, but at the moment that would be a foolish thing to do because we would run out of tests and not significantly reduce the spread of the epidemic. So it's a, it's a situation-specific recommendation um, and built on a lot of work that's been done in the past uh, and recently by our groups and others on the sort of theoretical dimensions of this, but it's all pretty much common sense uh, and driven by whether, uh, whether you can realistically count on stopping most cases by identifying them or whether you have to stop them without identifying them. Um, so I'm happy to take some questions about that or, or obviously about other topics. And I'll stop there. We'll take our first question. Hi, thank you very much. Um, so absence of testing strategy that is effective in this country, do we next go to a messaging strategy? Um, it, it seems that some states are telling people to, to stay home, closing non-essential businesses, and in places like Florida, that is not a statewide strategy. Um, what is the most effective messaging? Um, yeah, great question. Um, I think there are a lot of messages, uh, which makes it complicated. But the, uh, but the summary of those messages is if we want to keep them, we have to slow transmission as much as possible, and we have to uh, especially try to slow transmission to the most vulnerable or more likely to end up in the healthcare system. Um, that means 
if you have uh, respiratory symptoms, especially if you have a fever uh, and if you otherwise feel like you have the flu, isolate yourself and keep yourself as far from everyone as possible, but especially from those in the bar. We know that much of the transmission can happen from very mildly symptomatic or uh, pre-symptomatic people. In my view, the the need for intense social distancing is very strong right now um, because we have been watching countries around the world, uh, starting with China and then Iran and then Italy and now Spain uh, and others, finding their healthcare systems uh, at least stretched, if not really um, overwhelmed by uh, cases. And it looks similar trend is emerging in some U.S. states. Not every state is at that point yet, but the reason for the for asking now is that it takes around three weeks between the time we start slowing the cases down and the time the healthcare system benefits. So we should be thinking not how bad it is now, but how bad it would be if we don't act in three weeks. The reason for that delay is that uh, people who get infected today typically take, on the average, around three weeks before they get sick enough to need intensive care if they're going to get that sick. Obviously, most people don't get that sick. But the small fraction that do are enough people that uh, in many countries we've seen intense strains on uh, on the healthcare system. And to stop that, we have to act now to protect three weeks from now. Um, it's very hard to intuit if you don't spend your career thinking about these things. It's, it's very intuitive that if you don't see a problem now, you need to act to stop it in three weeks. But, uh, but we've got to all get it through our heads that that's how it is. And, um, and begin to act before we see the intense problem. Um, and I think my physician colleagues around the country are clearly seeing that and begging their, uh, non-physician and, and you know, non-healthcare worker counterparts to, uh, as the pictures say, uh, stay home to protect us the way we come to work to protect you. Uh, and I think as, as it becomes more intense in a few parts of the country, I hope that those remaining parts of the country that are fortunately earlier in the phase of the epidemic see that and, and take action. Uh, I find it unfortunate that it's taken that this long. And also unfortunate from what I've heard uh, from a reporter that uh, the president is beginning to recommend that we maybe need to lighten up on the social distancing. Uh, that seems very, uh, very counterproductive. We'll take our next question. Hi, Mark. Uh, thank you for taking the question. You said that uh, the need is intense for right now for strong social distancing. How long, uh, if you've had a chance to consider this, um, do we need to do that? As, as you know, there are reports out saying that to suppress the virus, we need to social distance for a minimum of five months. Other reports vary. Uh, what, what do you think about this? Um, I think... Uh, and by the way, you've been asking the, the preprint that we, uh, we've been working on on this topic is up on Dash, uh, the Harvard server, and I just sent it to you. 
in an email. Um, oh, great. Thank you. Uh, so it, it really depends on how long we do it. I mean, the question is how long we do it the first time, how intensely we do it, and um, and what other places in the world are doing. So I think we've seen in China that something on the order of less than two months, because they cracked down exactly two months ago today, January 23rd was the closing of major Chinese cities, and they've begun to let up and continue to have so far no reported cases. So if you can achieve Chinese-style social distancing, it may be that you can get to an undetectable level of cases uh, in something like six weeks or eight weeks. On the other hand, uh, it remains to be seen whether undetectable means zero or whether undetectable means uh, the early growth of a very small under-the-radar epidemic, as happened at the beginning. Uh, in China, in Wuhan. Um, and it also remains to be seen how they manage to keep imported cases out, even if they have truly gotten to zero. So I think we've, we have now a data point that says from a modest epidemic in Wuhan, modest meaning it just barely crashed the healthcare system, uh, so it's not that modest, and from a much more modest epidemic in um, in uh, other cities in China, where it never got close to crashing the healthcare system, you can do a lot of good in six to eight weeks of social distancing. The question is now, if you start social distancing when you see your healthcare system crashing, as has happened in Italy and. Uh, I fear is going to be the case in many parts of the United States that don't seem to be uh, getting with the program yet, uh, then that means that you have more cases in the population and that it will take longer to get down to close to zero. So I think all of these are dynamic variables that it's hard to give a, a fixed number for, but the worse you let it get before you start, the worse the longer it will take to get down to a reasonable level, especially because most of us don't expect the United States will be able to in, intense, be as intense in social distancing as the Chinese cities were. Um, so we'll have to see how it evolves in China um, and in other places as they get their epidemics under control. We'll take our next I'm not sure where the five-month number comes from. I hadn't seen that one. That's uh, in the Imperial College study. Uh, okay. We'll take our next question. I uh, I have um, questions on, on um, two topics, and I'll ask them separately. Um, for one, um, uh, I'm interested in serology tests. Can you explain if there are best practices for when these types of studies should be started and, um, you know, how many people to enroll or how to go about doing it to get, like, sort of the best sense of, of what you're looking for? Um, I think a lot of groups are trying to figure that out right now. Um, uh, and so I think the short answer is no, because we've never had a, quite this situation, and so no one did that research in advance. Um, 
but some general principles are that uh, you want repeated cross-sections of the population um, that will tell you across different age groups, uh, although, it may, although age may not be that important in this epidemic, but we need to find that out across different age groups. Uh, what is the proportion positive um, as a way of monitoring whether uh, we're anywhere close to a, a level of herd immunity that would retard the spread of the virus or slow the spread of the virus. Um, uh, in that regard, we expect very strong regional variation. So uh, one number for a country like the United States is not meaningful. Um, probably at least individual regions of the country and maybe even states and maybe even sub-state level variation is expected just because uh, when chains of transmission take off is a random process. And so, you know, I think while well, it's true that West Virginia has done almost no testing and therefore one reason it has so few cases is that it's done so little testing. Another reason is probably it is actually behind New York in terms of this epidemic because it took longer to get started there. So I think uh, serologic testing is going to be, um, it's going to need to be quite very, quite stratified and spread out across the country. Um, in terms of how many to do, uh, that's an evolving question where we kind of need to do some before we can answer that question because we really don't know whether um, – we don't really know for all the cases that we've seen how many under-the-radar cases are there. Um, and there's a famous rule of three uh, in statistics that if you do X tests and none of them are positive, then you can say that the – with 95% confidence that the population has less than three over X as the prevalence. So, for example, if you do 100 tests and all of them are negative, then that means that less than you're pretty sure that less than 3% of the population, three out of 100, uh, have actually been uh, exposed. So, if you want to just get a quick sense, you could start with 100 and see if you get zero or more that are positive, and if you're sure that those positives are real, uh, then you then you could scale down the testing a little bit uh, in future surveys because uh, you'll be you'll know that you're looking at ten you know at some single percent at least if not more. Whereas if it, they're all negative, then you have to do more tests before you can really get a precise estimate of how many there are. You need some positives in your sample, but you don't know how many positives there are going to be until you start doing it. The key thing is to share information across places about what what people are finding uh, in real time, so that we can we can refine the testing strategies. And then, sorry, on on another topic, you know, you were talking about, um, I guess, like maybe the first wave of cases potentially uh, kind of cresting or ending in in places like China, and I guess. Um, whether it's in China now or in the U.S. eventually, like what needs to be done after that first wave of cases to either prevent or delay or minimize a second wave? 
like anticipating that that will happen. Yeah. Um, you need very intensive testing uh, protocols in place, um, looking at ill people to enhance your sensitivity, looking at um, asymptomatic people to make sure you're not missing cases, although uh, you can't do infinitely many asymptomatic people uh, very often because you just run out even if you're China. Um, so you need uh, very systematic testing in place uh, and a surveillance system that can make some estimate of, of what the actual prevalence is so that you can um, react in time if you're starting to get uh, if you're starting to get a signal of growing numbers of cases and then ideally if the case numbers are really low enough you really can do a more uh, Singapore-like or iPhone-like strategy of, of really um, following individual cases uh, rather than just social distancing and you may be able to get away with potentially with less social distancing uh, the second time around because you're also controlling the individual cases. But the feasibility of that remains to be seen and requires a lot of organization that doesn't yet exist. But I think the more forward-looking states are racing to create that infrastructure. Massachusetts is, New York is, Washington is. Um, probably some others are that I don't know about. But that investment will pay off because it will mean a much greater ability to know what's happening and to both minimize the negative impact of interventions by putting them on only when they're needed and also to minimize the impact on the healthcare systems by putting them on before the before the impact is felt on the healthcare system. Thanks very much. We'll take our next question. Hello, thanks for taking my question. Um, so I'm in Germany, and here in Berlin um, today, um, the Robert Koch Institute said that they're starting to see maybe some initial signs of exponential growth in new cases um, flattening out, um, and that they, I think they said by the middle of the week they'll, they'll know whether this is the case or not. I'm kind of wondering how we should think about that. Like, did, once the exponential growth starts flattening, how much longer do people have to remain socially distanced? How is it possible for it to flatten and then just like shoot back up? Um, what should we think about in terms of time frames? And is it realistic to think that like a week or two of staying in our apartments is really enough um, for, for this to slow down? I mean, I think the kind of car analogy, if you're on a hill, is, is roughly the right analogy. So if you're sitting on a downhill and you put on the brakes, uh, you'll slow yourself down, and eventually you might come to a stop uh, in new cases. That still means there's some cases around, but they're they're going down because they're only recovering and not being new infections. Um, and if you let your foot off the brake, which is letting up on the intervention, then gravity will start to accelerate the car again, and then as long as there's the, the as long as there are any cases still around, uh, you will start to speed up uh, and get more cases. Um, so it's not uh, you know to push the analogy beyond where it should be. <laughs> the, 
a vaccine would be an emergency break, and then you can let up, and and uh, you have another another backstop. But in the absence of a vaccine or some other, uh, you know, very extreme sort of seasonal changes in transmissibility, which would be temporary, but but we can hope will be uh, be present. Uh, in the absence of some external factor, if there's any virus around, it keeps trans it starts transmitting again when you let up on social distancing. So a flattening of the curve is the first step. That's great. Uh, it's much better than not seeing that, but that's very different from having a decline in the number of cases, which in itself is still different from having no detectable cases or few detectable cases. So it's definitely good news. Uh, I don't remember exactly the term of the, the temporal sequence of when Germany put in social distancing, but but it's weeks ago, not not a month ago, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, we should be thrilled to find out any good news about the trend in the cases, but that doesn't mean it's time to let up. It means it's, it's showing that the, the effects we were hoping for are beginning to happen and we need to continue. Unfortunately. Okay. Thank you. But that's important, very important data because uh, so far, we, to my knowledge, really, um, there have been not too many places where we've seen uh, how social distancing works, especially in in the West. Uh, so that's important to see. We'll take our next question. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I want to take you a little bit parochially to Massachusetts, and I'm wondering if you think um, the advisory went out today for all businesses to close down. Um, is it soon enough? Uh, do you think that that is going to flatten the curve in, in Massachusetts, or, or is it too late? And relatedly, now that we're seeing um, deaths being recorded um, pretty regularly over the last few days, what does that tell us? We knew people were going to die, but does that say something significant about the status of the epidemic in the state? Well, I think it puts a, a, an even more intense human face on on what people were suspecting and probably was happening already, but just not being detected. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I think it shows that that Massachusetts is like. That we're all human beings and susceptible to this virus, uh, which is something that uh, I hope will become more and more obvious to more and more people because uh, delays are not good. Um, I think there's no answer to when when it's too late. I think uh, I think there's a real risk that our healthcare system is going to get badly strained from physicians that I talk to. They're feeling the strain already in terms of shortages of personal protective equipment. That's, that's an intense strain already in Massachusetts um, and I believe almost everywhere in the country. Um, and, uh, you know, I personally know healthcare workers who have been uh, exposed and, and uh, probably have it. I actually don't know what the test result was. There's, there's you know, this is real for them. Uh, they're very concerned about the lack of ability to protect themselves. Um, and uh, so I think 
tightening the social distancing is is absolutely the right thing to do, um, and I hope that other places that haven't done it already will follow suit. But um, is it soon enough? I guess if we're already seeing people dying, we're already seeing the ICU starting to fill up, and it takes three weeks for this kind of social distancing to make a difference, it sounds like it's too late, right? We're still going to see a pretty well, bad it, surge. It makes a difference immediately it doesn't it doesn't slow the problem for the ICUs for three weeks but it, it certainly um, uh, so I think yes we, we will continue to see growth in the rate at which people have bad outcomes in Massachusetts uh, because I believe the epidemic is probably still growing right now or uh, and it takes weeks before someone infected typically uh, needs intensive care or dies. So I think we will see an accelerating rate of that. Um, and so in that sense, yes, it's too late. Um, but earlier is always better. And, and, and you know, I, I don't envy the decision makers who have to make the decision between uh, um, protecting the healthcare system and protecting lives in that way, and also the, the very real cost of the social distancing. I think it's really important for those of us who are pushing for intensive social distancing to say that we understand uh, that it's a costly thing, not just for luxuries, but for lives and, and well-being of a lot of people. Um, and so I think it's as important to try to mitigate the effects of the mitigation as it is to as yeah. it is to do it. Um, and that's one reason I'm happy to live in Massachusetts, which is a more humane state than some others that I know about. But um, but it's going to be hard even with the best efforts of the Commonwealth. And I think we'll, um, we've been dealt a bad hand, but so has everyone. But it'll make a difference. It's just not. We're still going to see some hard yes. times before there, but it's it's could. Yes, There's, every indication is the surveillance of of um, influenza-like illness in the Commonwealth. So I think I think we might be able to see it sooner than a few weeks. Um, okay. Because because it should turn up in in other types of data, but I think that remains to be seen because the whole system is under such stress uh, that the numbers are meaning something different than they used to. Yeah. We'll take our next question. Yeah. I've been told, and we've had this, con this sort of historic um, dilemma where some people saying that infectious disease always gets you know, a lot more attention than chronic disease, and even in terms of disease burden in, norm in normal circumstances, not during a pandemic. And now there are questions about how big a price we are paying to fight an infectious disease in terms of uh, other choices that have to be made, made like cancer care and heart care. And at what point will we have this sort of, or, or, or what, what kind of advice or, or guidance would there be for balancing these medical needs? And when does the cure become worse, or the treatment become worse than the disease? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, 
you know, the the reason why we pay attention to pandemics uh, and to the early phases of pandemics, um, even when they're not yet competing in terms of casualties with seasonal infectious diseases or with chronic diseases is because they can grow so fast. Um, and, you know, there are there's no good answer to that question. The disease is bad disease is bad disease and, and dying from an illness is is bad regardless of why is what kind of illness. Um, and it's clear that reducing medical care for um, both prevention and treatment of other types of diseases is a cost that we're going to pay. Um, on the other hand, one thing about a contagious disease is it not only affects the people, the patients, but it also affects the healthcare workers. And if we don't control this disease, then oncology nurses and uh, dietitians and uh, cardiologists are all going to be at risk of getting it. And, uh, you know, they're going to be out of the office because they're under isolation or they're you know, there have been stories of many, many residents, medical residents being quarantined when they first had exposures. So not dealing with this problem is really not an option. Uh, there are, is a lot of collateral harm from dealing with this, but there's a lot of collateral harm, particularly to the care of infectious and non-infectious diseases if we don't control it. So. Uh, it's not a. It's not to dismiss the concern, but it's just to say that uh, we have a limited number of options, and the healthcare system, preserving the healthcare system, is a good idea for all sorts of reasons. We'll take our next question. Thank you. Thanks for taking my question. So I'd like to ask about masks. You know, normally I'm very happy to parrot what the public health officials tell us to say, but in this case, you know, they've said very clearly, don't wear, people in general should not wear simple masks. But now the wisdom on that seems to be shifting. There's a whole bunch of do-it-yourself masks being made. Hospitals are telling their entire staff to wear masks when they're in public places. And so I, I wonder if you can comment on, on that, and particularly on whether it does seem to be true that the widespread use of masks uh, made a difference or is making a difference in Asian countries where where that's the norm, you know, with the ultimate question being, well, should we all be putting on bandanas when we, when we go out? Uh, this weekend, for the first time in Boston, I saw lots of non-Asian people on the street wearing them, and I'm just wondering what your wisdom is on that. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, I think you put your finger on an important question. Uh, I I think there's not good, really hard evidence that mask wearing is beneficial, but there's a, a fair amount of soft evidence that it's at least not harmful and probably somewhat beneficial. The public health message came in part because uh, of a concern about shortages and the sense that it's more valuable to protect healthcare workers than to protect low-risk members of the general population. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, if we had a high, highly organized federal response, 
we would have a lot more masks. And uh, the fact that we don't is a complete failure of not just the public health system, but the but the uh, executive power in the country, in my opinion. Um, we have to increase production of masks, and we do have to make sure that the healthcare system gets them first, uh, or we're really uh, we're going to have no healthcare workers because they'll be sick and they'll be uh, in quarantine from ex unprotected exposures, and frankly, some of them might decide that they aren't willing to work under uh, the inhumane conditions of being told to interact with sick people without equipment that's available in every other country in the world, almost, certainly every other rich country in the world. So um, so I think it's a really hard question, and I think the solution that you suggest of people making them uh, – I mean, it is clear that surgical masks don't stop virus from getting into your uh, mouth and nose because the, the holes in the fabric are too big and the holes on the sides are even bigger. So I think uh, improvising masks and bandanas and stuff may be an 80% solution, but it's, it's really, I think at this point, there's not a lot of data, and it's a um, it's a hard question. Well, it, it, what's your sense of whether so there isn't a lot of data, but in these Asian countries where it's absolutely the norm to just wear a mask if you go out these days, is there any reason to think that is making a difference? Uh, I don't know. Okay, thank um, you. I think one of my most respected colleagues uh, is a guy named Ben Cowling, biostatistician, British biostatistician who works in Hong Kong and has for many years. He's written some uh, some materials on this question, which I keep wanting to read and then the phone rings. <laughs> I'll find them. I haven't had a chance. Um, I, would, I would recommend looking at what he's written. Uh, and I think he's sort of thought about it as carefully as anybody I know. Great, thanks. We'll take our next question. The, to the earlier question about serological testing, there's been some chatter about using it to identify specifically, you know, medical personnel who may have already been infected so that they can return to work. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about deploying such a test in that manner, particularly since there may be some indication that people can get reinfected. Yeah, um, I've uh, publicly stated that I support that if we can verify that uh, serologic positivity really is protective. Um, it certainly is going to be, I mean, just from general principles without data from this epidemic, it will almost certainly be much better to have been exposed before than, uh, than not. So those people will be protected as if by a, at least as if by a not very effective vaccine uh, and maybe, maybe as if by a fully effective vaccine. So we need to we need to check to make sure um, that protection is real before doing that on a large scale. But um, but I think it will be an important part of the strategy uh, because we'll need to keep healthcare workers in action. Um, in terms of the reinfection, uh, the the most famous stories about reinfection have been 
individuals who tested negative and then tested positive soon thereafter. Um, and uh, pretty much every specialist I know of, uh, including me, thinks that the most likely explanation of those stories is that the person, for whatever reason, had a negative test in between two positive tests, but it was the same infection. It's really hard to prove that without, well, it's really, you can't prove that for sure uh, without maybe sequencing the viruses or something, but, um, but it's a much more plausible explanation given that swabbing is an imperfect art and there are going to be negative tests in people who are shedding virus and there are going to be people who have parts of their body where they're shedding more virus and less virus. So it's so likely those were false negatives? Sort of routine. Yeah. I mean, it's routine when you're analyzing uh, that kind of swab data to assume that you have some rate of false negatives and try to estimate it from the data. You can't estimate rates from anecdotes, but but it's not normal to imagine that there's, it's not sensible to imagine that every test is 100% sensitive. That doesn't exist. Thank you. We'll take our next question. Hi. Um, I, I was wondering sort of uh, a couple of things, but um, one question I have is, you know, what happened to the CDC? Why is it so invisible in this crisis? And what does that mean? And do you think that um, if budgets at CDC and at state public health hadn't been cut so badly, you know, how much of a difference would that make in the given in the current situation? Yeah, uh, I don't know. I have had a twenty, almost twenty-five or maybe more year history of collaborating with valued colleagues at CDC. It makes me very sad to see the lack of uh, the lack of um, really being out front in the way that they were in 2009 uh, when Anshuket was every day providing really good information uh, and very available to the press. Um, I have huge respect for their professionalism and their ability to lead in a crisis like this, and I don't understand why they're not uh, being allowed to do that. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Let's take our next question. Well, I appreciate the opportunity for a follow-up. I just wanted to ask, um, first of all, do you think that Florida should be, from your perspective, you know, doing the more aggressive action like a statewide shutdown, or is that something you don't want to comment on? Um, and then I just have another point. Florida has started to um, report hospitalizations by community. And since it's clear that in every major metro area there's been a spike in hospitalizations relating to COVID, um, since it takes two to four weeks before an infection reaches hospitalization, as you mentioned, can we draw any conclusions about the widespread transmission in these communities? Because we, we really do not have the testing data um, that's, uh, that's not, it's not coming through very quickly. There's huge delays here as well. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. Well, so I was going to punt your first question because I haven't had time to study the data from Florida, but uh, your second question <laughs> gave me some of that data. So if indeed uh, communities around the state are seeing spikes in COVID hospitalizations, then 
it is past time to uh, to intervene to slow transmission. And um, uh, the opportunities to impose social distancing in a place where actually the weather is permissive of being outside more, uh, it doesn't even have to be quite as painful in Florida as it would be uh, in some colder places. Uh, not that people should gather in giant groups at Disney World, but that if you can sit outside and talk to your neighbor across the fence, that, uh, that is social distancing, and it's also uh, more pleasant than, than what you have to do if you're in a cold place. Um, I, I think Florida should be doing what all the uh, all the states that are experiencing uh, an upsurge are doing, and what the states that aren't yet seeing an upsurge should be doing uh, as a as a cautionary measure. Um, hospitalization doesn't take three weeks typically; it's more like two weeks, uh, at least based on the data that we've looked at. Um, it's the intensive care that tends to take an extra week or so. Uh, and those, those are averages, of course. There's a variability. But, um, yeah, an uptick in hospitalizations is an indication that there's a lot of transmission that's not being seen because it's a small fraction of all cases that go to the hospital. Uh, and uh, it's hard to exactly predict that. Uh, especially as a function of demographics, because it's more severe in older people. But um, but if you're seeing a signal in in that kind of surveillance, that is a sign that there's a growing problem, or that there's a real problem. And everywhere we know about it's growing unless you control it. So uh, expect it to be double in a week or so, and then worse in another week, unless there's some wow. kind of slowdown. Thank you. We'll take our next question. Uh, hello. Uh, thanks for thanks for doing this. Um, so my question is about uh, sort of say say in a couple of months we've sort of been good enough at doing social distancing to to calm the epidemic. Um, I guess from kind of like probably more of a qualitative standpoint, what would sort of the testing and public health tracing capability have to have to sort of look like for you to feel comfortable kind of relaxing society-wide social distancing measures um, and sort of remaining confident that 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 testing and isolating new cases and tracing contacts can sort of pick up the slack. Uh, we're still working on that and I don't really have a very good answer for you but um, but I guess you would first want to see that the intensive care excess demand has gone close to zero because that's the that's the thing that we're sort of that's probably the first choke point. Um, you would want to see that all the syndromic like the hospitalizations and things were uh, back to seasonal baselines. Um, as they've been in previous years. And you would need enough testing of, of uh, 
mildly ill or, or healthy people to have a sense that you know about most of the cases, meaning that when you test 100 healthy people, you don't have any reason to suspect or, or more that you have zero positives. And 100 is just made up. So when you test a large number, it depends on the size of the population and those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, so we're a long way from that in terms of testing capacity, um, and we're also a long way from that in terms of the burden of illness right now. Yeah, thank you. And we'll end the call there. Thanks to everyone. This concludes the March 23rd press conference.